investigator had implied. And he was trying to get me to figure out or to get me to confess and to even pay back the money. I was freaking out until I realized that I wasn't on the hook for any of it. None of it. I was not responsible for stealing. I was not responsible for getting the money back. And so when that truth entered into my mind, this is after I had spoken with this creditor for at least on a few different occasions, after that truth came to my mind, the fears disappeared. Certainly annoyance had remained. Credit was, my own credit was temporarily messed up. But the fact that I was not responsible was the truth. It was the truth that changed everything in that moment. It was the truth that moved me from fear to then freedom. It was the truth that moved me from hopelessness to being hopeful. Well, friends, in our passage today, we see someone who had every earthly reason to freak out, every reason to fear and to be hopeless. And this is David. Our passage today is 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. I invite you to turn there with me now. 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. And we see him actually growing in hope because of the truth that changes the situation. It is the truth that his sovereign God protects him. That God is with him. And that God, without a shadow of a doubt, will fulfill his good purposes for him. And for his own glory, that is God's glory. Friends, as we look at these chapters, I wonder, what hope do you cling to in deep darkness? The theme has certainly come up. David has asked us basically that very question. What hope do you cling to in deep darkness? And even in those circumstances, is the hope of God? Is that hope with you? Just as God is with you. We have been going through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and for those visiting for the first time, 1 Samuel is all about God's people transitioning to having an earthly king. That is, God's people transitioning to having an earthly king. Now, that sounds good, but in reality, in the moment, it was really bad. See, the people had rejected God as king over them, even though he was the one who formed them. Think about how God drew near to to, uh, Abraham. Father Abraham, and eventually from Abraham's line comes all of Israel, right? He was the one who formed them. But still, the people reject God as king over them. And not only that, though, but God was the one who was sustaining them. God had brought them, think back to the Exodus, God brings them out of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's hand of slavery, and then he brings people into the promised land. You can think of the book of Joshua. But still, even though God was preserving them, his people abandoned him. God adopts, and the people abandon him. And instead, they don't want God over them. They want an earthly king who will go on and wield an earthly sword and fight their battles for them. They want so badly to live by sight and not by faith. And of course, despite God's faithfulness, the people reject, and God gives them over to what they want. A man named Saul is chosen as king, but though he looks the part, right, he's tall, he's strong, he lacks heart. In fact, all heart. Here we're talking about a love for God. He lacks those very very things. But of course, despite the people's sins, God continues to preserve them. He saves the day, and he is faithful to his promises. And he starts to prepare for his people a new king. That is a man who is after God's own heart. And this is David, our character today that we look at. But Saul, of course, ungodly as he is, he's not just going to lie there and let David to let David assume the throne peacefully. No, instead he makes David's life absolutely miserable, being so consumed with jealousy and covetousness, looking for his own glory, he stops at nothing to eliminate David, this contender to the throne. And David, with the king and his forces after him, he flees into all that is unknown and all alone, it seems. This is where we are when we pick up this history in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. Friends, even though the events of this story happened around 2,000 years ago, 
we certainly can learn from this account, right? Don't just think because it's history, there's nothing to learn. God has given us his very word for life and doctrine. There's something certain, certainly that we can learn. And I'm sure you guys know this already. We too might feel abandoned. We too might feel alone in the things that we are facing as we face the unknown and feel all alone. When darkness falls, we know what it feels like to, for things to seem like hope is vanquished. To some degree, that's exactly what David might be thinking. But in our chapters and in our chapters that follow, so not only 21 and 22, but the chapters that follow in the rest of the book, we see here that David actually never abandons hope. Why is that? It's because God never abandons him. Let's look first at point number one, if you're taking notes. Point number one, desperate times calls for desperate measures. Desperate times calls for desperate measures. As chapter 21 opens up, David here is desperate. He's on the run, once again, because Saul wanted his head on a platter. But in a very moving account in chapter 20, Saul's very own son, Jonathan, actually helps David escape. And in tears, if you guys remember this, for those of you who are with us, in tears they part ways. There in chapter 20, it takes place in this one field outside of the city. Jonathan, after they part ways, has to return back to the city to face even greater trials because Saul, his father, had already tried to kill him for helping out David. And David goes in the opposite direction. He heads out away from the city to get anywhere but that city. Imagine how David feels exiled from his friends, basically apart from his men, his soldiers, and is now being hunted by the king of Israel. And he has nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, already, we already see, right? We already are pointed to another king of Israel, a king over his people, who seemingly had nothing. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, too, was harassed. Jesus Christ was almost killed in the beginning as he was moving towards the cross and then eventually was, in fact, killed. And on his earthly path here, he he had nowhere to lay his head, or Scripture says. But yet, though he lived in desperate times, he was, though, always able to remain faithful, even as he walked in the shadow of the cross towards the cross. He continued doing his Father's will, and joyfully so, knowing that he was in the care of, of the Lord. Friends, even in his death. This is what David is learning, a man after God's own heart. He's learning to entrust his own heart to the very hands of God. Verse 1, you see there, David is all alone. Again, he has nothing. David goes about two miles to see a man named Ahimelech, the Israelite priest. Go ahead and look there, 21.1. Then David came to Nob, which was where all the priests were dwelling at the time, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Ahimelech here, he's trembling because he knows that David actually has great stature on behalf of the king. And it's a pretty well-known fact at this point in time that the king is kind of going crazy in terms of uh, he wants glory so much that he'll stop at nothing to go and get it. And so he, he recognizes the stature that David has. He recognizes that David has already def, uh, defeated Goliath. And so Ahimelech, he just thinks it's strange that David has come alone. Look there at verse 2. What does David say? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, friends, we're actually not too sure about David's motives right here as he says, quote, the king has charged me with a matter. The language could be interpreted, could be intentionally interpreted as vague. You know, has Saul really sent him on a matter? In fact, Saul wants to kill him. So so what's behind his motives here? He's saying the king sent me on a matter. Well, again, the language could be interpreted to be intentionally vague. Could he be talking about God the king? Or could he mean, does he necessarily mean Saul the king, right? The language is vague. We've got to acknowledge that. It's vague enough for, da- for, for David to answer, sorry, to not answer fully, right? And it's vague enough to let Ahimelech draw his own conclusions about why David has exactly come, or maybe vague enough for Ahimelech just to simply move on. Some commentators see David as trying to actually protect Ahimelech, which is what I think he's doing here. And you know why David might want to protect Ahimelech? Well, you know what happens if you help David. Just look at Jonathan. 
All of a sudden, Jonathan's life is in danger because he's helping Saul. So I think Saul knows that the more and more people he helps, that those people's lives will be in danger. Saul is going to try and kill him. So he keeps back a good amount of truth and the reasons, and he provides this answer. Perhaps David says what he does, so Ahimelech, you can imagine, could deny any sort of genuine plot against Saul, right, if Saul ever came and asked him, which actually he does later on. Regardless of David's motives, Ahimelech helps him. He helps him in two different ways here in this passage. He gives him food and he gives him weapons. He gives him food and weapons. Let's just continue reading here. Verse 3, now, now, what do you have on hand, David says? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. He's thinking you have to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean, basically, to uh, receive this bread. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an extraordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So what happens? Look there in verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So you see there what's going on. Here Ahimelech helps them with the basic necessities of food. And it was required of God in the book of Leviticus that holy bread would be offered up to God in the holy place. Twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes that entered into covenant with God, or we should say that God entered into covenant with, right? He's forming, preserving, sustaining them. They are his people. And uh, every night the, the loaves of bread would be changed out for fresh ones. And so, look, it's nighttime, and Ahimelech goes ahead and decides to have mercy on David, who needs uh, food to eat there. And so the priest gives him the bread. And then in verse 2, we're just walking through the text here, going to explain it. Look at verse, sorry, verse 7. And you see that he also asks for uh, weapons. You see there in verse 7, he's going to mention this man uh, who is present, whose name comes up later on. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Let's just go ahead and get background according to the chapter, and then we'll go on. Uh, So he's in desperate situations here, right? He has no food. He has no weapons. But I think he's under even greater stress than that, right? He's all alone. You see that happening there in verse 10. Go ahead and look there. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? They recognize him. You recognize the name Gath for those of you who are with us? This is Goliath's hometown. He's fleeing to Goliath's hometown. He just needs to get out of Israel. And so where does he go? For some reason, he chooses to go there. And so they recognize him. Is this not David, the king of the land? As in, he probably has stature to be the king of the land. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So what does he do, right? He knows that they recognize him. He's probably thinking, gosh, with this sword, they're going to kill me with Goliath's very own sword and get my head on a platter. And so what does he do? Look there in verse 13. You see here, he's under great stress. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate. So he's clawing at this gate, probably writing something with his very own hands on the walls, and let his spittle run down his beard. That is, he's pretending to be crazy. He's writing stuff on the walls and letting spit just kind of drip down his beard. Why is that? So that they will recognize and see that he's actually, or think that he's not a threat. And that's exactly what happens. Then Achish said to his servants there in 14, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, again, we're not told why he does this, why he changes his appearance. Some commentators actually do think that he is living by sight when he should have been living by faith, kind of like when Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt and then they lied to Pharaoh and then bad stuff ends up happening. God rescues the day. Some people think that, he, that here David is living in the same way that Abraham and Sarah did by sight, 
when they should have been living by faith. Other commentators don't explicitly say one thing or another on the issue. I think, though, at the very least, what is clear is that David is under great stress. And there's no mention, actually, of God anywhere in this chapter. What's interesting is that by the end of the section in our passage today, by 22, there certainly is mention of God. I think here we see that David, what the story is telling us, the history is telling us, that David here at this point is a man learning to put his trust in God despite all circumstances. Despite all circumstances. And I think he does, as we see as the history unfolds. Now, I find it interesting that when most people think of David, right, when you guys think of David, who eventually does, in fact, become king by the grace of God, he is actually a pretty good one, though he certainly is sinful, it's easy to forget how such... uh, the background that he comes from. It's easy to forget such humiliating circumstances that God brought him out of, how low he came from to eventually go high as the Lord raised him up. Some of us know that he was indeed a shepherd boy. Apparently, he was, uh, didn't appear as strong as his other brothers. But at this point of the story, he's in an even more humiliating circumstance, all the more. He is destitute. He is on the run. He has no provisions, no food, no protection, feeling the need to pretend to be crazy, let spit dribble down his beard. Friends, that's humiliating. No food, no protection, no provision. I wonder if that's how you might feel today. Certainly in different circumstances, you probably don't have people after your life. But I wonder if that's, friends, how you might feel in the trials and tribulations that you experience Difficult health situations. Relationships aren't working out. The loved ones that you so pray for so many times just continually seem to be rebelling against you and ultimately God. Maybe you recently lost a job. You feel like there's no way that you can provide not only for yourself but then for your family who might rely upon you as well. What's interesting is that even though David has no provisions, seemingly, he actually has all the provisions he needs. And I think you see this in chapter 21 even, even though there's no mention of God. right? In the sovereign providence of God, what magnificent provision he actually receives. He is provided not just any bread, but the bread of the presence. Isn't that interesting? Not just any sword, but the sword of the giant Goliath. Those things are fascinating. Let me just explain here. He could have received any loaf of bread, right? For example, if we were to receive a loaf of bread, let's say 85 degrees, right? Where they serve excellent artisan pastries, right? What what does that symbolize when you think of, hey, let's go to 85 degrees? I think, wow, my taste buds are going to be tickled because I love eating 85 degrees. That's what I think of when I think of that kind of bread. What was David to think of when he received those loaves of bread? We're not told his response, but I can't help but think that he should have been awfully encouraged. The bread of the presence comes from the holy place of the tabernacle, where what happens? What does that symbolize? And what does actually occur there in the Old Testament? God met with his people. His presence pledged, and I'm going to show my presence right here in the holy place of the tabernacle. Again, Leviticus There, God had commanded the people to place the bread in the holy place as an offering to God in memory, Leviticus says, in memory of God's covenant with Israel, of His faithfulness, of His grace, of His mercy, in memory of the fact that the Lord, all by His grace, saves and forms and preserves His people. And every night, again, this bread was switched out, so Ahimelech gives David some of these loaves. So David here is carrying away and feeding off of the bread of the presence. You can imagine it's kind of hard to be, to let's say, live in hopelessness in that situation when you're carrying 20 pounds almost of bread, the bread of the presence, because that's actually how much he had, probably. He asked for five loaves. Let's just assume Ahimelech gives him five loaves. Each of the bread of the presence, from what I understand, each loaf, at least the materials there, weighed between four to five pounds. So let's say the thing rises. I'm not a baker. We can ask our professional chef later on. Uh, But I believe it would just get heavier, probably, or at least maintain the same weight. So he's walking away with five loaves of bread. 
20 pounds of bread. What a, what a reminder of the Lord's faithful presence if he had been thinking about Israel's history and what God desires in terms of worship. He's feeding off of the symbols that represent God's steadfast love. And then think of the sword. Think, of what the, think about what the sword symbolized. When everyone else in Israel was afraid of the Philistine, of his size and his power, the strength of Goliath, who was it that in the face of Goliath's mockery, derision, and defiance of the Lord God Almighty, who was it that took the Lord's side? It was David, who comes along and just simply asks the shepherd, little shepherd boy, comes along and asks, who is this Philistine that defies the armies of the Lord? I will go, trusting in the Lord, exercising faith in God. He then goes and destroys Goliath. So imagine receiving that sword. It would have reminded David of God's provision, God's faithfulness to those who are in covenant with God, to those who keep steadfast love of the Lord. Now again, we're not quite sure what his response was. The passage doesn't say, but I hope David would be encouraged to eat of the bread and to hold the sword remembering the blessings of covenant faithfulness. Why? Because God had promised His presence. In terms of application, in thinking about the dark times again and the trials that we experience here in this life, we too have many opportunities to be encouraged in the loneliness that we might feel, the discouragement, the difficulty of trial, the suffocation that we feel in dark, difficult times. I know for many, I know from personal experience, when facing trials and temptations, it is easy to think in lack of knowledge or forgetfulness that God is not with us, right? I don't know if you have ever thought that. I certainly have and be happy to have long conversations about this. But just as David had reminders of God's covenant faithfulness, church, you realize that we do too. We do too in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus who walked with us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so every single Sunday when we hear the Word of God preached, as we open this Word of God, we can remember again that, yes, Jesus Christ walked with us, that He might identify with us, that He might intercede for us. He walks with us and is so present with us. He's present with us even right now, even though He has departed. We know that after He died, He rose from the dead three days later and ascended to the right hand of God but yet He is with us in His Word. In many ways, the Word of God is an extension of God, as you know, my words to my children are an extension of who I am. And so to disobey my Word or to obey my Word and embrace it with love is to embrace me. And so too, we are here face to face with God Himself, His Word. And praise God we have these opportunities to do so, to be reminded and think again about God's faithfulness, His covenant faithfulness to people who don't deserve anything but judgment on account of our own sin against him. Praise God for the word of God that explains the great cross event and the resurrection and his ascension. The word of God has been breathed out by God. It is produced by the spirit of God. This is God's inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, effectual word, necessary word, and we feed off of it as it makes us wise unto salvation, right? So they are, uh, these are not the words only about Christ. They are the words of Christ. Now, as Christians, we are not waging an earthly battle, waging or wielding an earthly sword, so to speak, for God. We do not carry weapons in the spiritual warfare, but instead we are to wield this sword of truth that is the word. Right, I mean, if you, think about, if you think about the most discouraging time you've ever experienced, it's hard, isn't it, to remain in hopelessness when your face is stuck here looking at Jesus Christ who walked with us, died on the cross for us, bore the wrath and the penalty that we deserve for our very own sin. We recognize that God is with us even in difficult times, even when our health is failing, even when relationships don't seem to be working out, work situations are not the way it was, is that you had dreamed about, or even the faith is not what you had imagined as you experience mockery from your friends, persecution, 
It's hard to remain in permanent hopelessness when we have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament that speak of God's plan to save sinners in Jesus Christ, given to us that we might be saved. That we might look to God, God the Son with us. We're reminded that we too, no matter what we face, are in the Lord's care, just as Christ was. You know what else reminds us of God's steadfast covenant love? Like David, it is something that we are to eat physically. It's the Lord's Supper where we are to eat and drink of Christ's symbolic body and blood. In the Lord's Supper, we remember, right, once again, God's covenant love for His people in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins. For First, uh, for first Baptist Church, for members of the church, uh, you know, but uh, if you're visiting with us, on the first Sunday evening of every month, which is tonight, we take time to remember through our senses, right, through our hearing, as we explain the gospel, and then also through our tasting and even some degree smelling the bread and the juice. We remember God's grace in Jesus Christ. Of course, it doesn't impart grace. It's not like when we take it, we get constitutionally righteous as if we're adding righteousness to our bank account. No, we remember But even in doing these things, we remember God's grace, that through His broken body and shed blood, He bore the wrath that we deserved for having rebelled against God. Man was the one who had rebelled against our loving Creator. The Creator drew near to us. This is what we celebrate. This is what we talk about if you're visiting and know yourself not to be a Christian. This is what we celebrate. This is what we speak of in the Gospel. God had created man. Man rebelled against their loving Creator. Can you imagine that? God the Father drawing near to His created people. And we just saying, we don't care, just just leave. Shutting the door in his face and the disrespect and the dishonor. Instead of worshiping him, we basically worship ourselves. We determine our own way, rejecting his good and loving authority, rejecting his word. But what's amazing is that where we created the problem, God provides the solution. We deserved death and judgment, right? We're all held accountable by God, but yet God says He's going to delay His judgment, and in so doing, He provides Jesus Christ, who lives the perfect life we should have, dies the death we should have, bears the wrath that all of His people deserve, so that now the invitation would be flung wide in that all who call out to Jesus will be saved. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. If you've ever seen people take the Lord's Supper, if, again, if you're a non-Christian, we invite you to visit with us tonight. You'll watch us take the Lord's Supper. That's why we do things. It's because we remember Christ's broken body, His shed blood. Same reason why we turn up here to hear the word of the gospel. It's hard to remember, or sorry, hard to remain in permanent hopelessness when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup that points to God the Son with us, who came in the flesh, and now who gives His people His very own Spirit, and who will come again bodily to deliver all of His promises according to His grace. I encourage you guys to make it a point. If you're a member of the church, make it a point to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us Sunday evenings on the first Sunday of every month. And in so doing, we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing that, We receive God's grace. No matter how difficult or destitute your situation, our situation may be, God calls us to remember again through the Word of God and the ordinances of the church, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, by the way, we're going to have another one in the upcoming weeks. We remember that God is faithful and that He, in fact, is on the move, saving sinners, bringing them together in the church and preserving His people in Christ. And for David, this is, in fact, his growing hope. Let's turn to point number two now. Point number two, the glimmer of hope. The glimmer of hope. David makes his way to a city called Ajilam. If you look there, and here I think he's gaining hope here. David departed from there. This is verse 1 of chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Ajilam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard of it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So you see there, people are rallying around him, his brothers, his family. He even gains 400 soldiers. And that by, the, by chapter 25, this, this group becomes actually 600 soldiers. 
he continues, look, look down in verse 3, he continues on the move there. David went there from Mizpah uh, of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So he goes to this place called Moab, and it's, not, it's actually quite a natural place for him to go because his great-grandmother uh, was from Moab, Ruth, if you remember, the Old Testament character. But it's, but it's in the end of verse 3, look again there, that you see this, this hope. I imagine there that he says this with some degree of fear and anxiety, please let my father and mother stay with you. Right? We just imagine that Saul's going to be chasing not only him, but then also his family members. Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. He's confident, actually, right there. Don't, don't read that and think that that's like some sort of throwaway line, like there's some sort of little line, like, God, till I know what God will do for me. Like, you all know what it's like to enter into your day apart from prayer. So this is no little line here. You know what it's like to not seek the Lord's will in certain circumstances, to not go to the word of God, to see what the word has to say about you, your situation, what God will do for you in Christ, what he has done for you in Christ. Some of you guys woke up today breathing God's air, going about the life God has given you without a care for God. So you know that to seek the Lord is actually a good and big deal, right? That's what he says there. Let my parents stay here till I know what God will do for me. Now, friends, of course, David, thinking about how David is seeking what the Lord will do for him. Of course, there are differences with the way David seeks the Lord's will and the way that we do. David is uniquely seeking the Lord's will, right? God is using this unique person to bring about his will. He is the first good king of Israel. God uses David to prophesy. Let's say you can think about uh, uh, Psalms. And it is from David that will come the Christ, right? I'm just saying that David is unique here. And so is the way that God is directing David. In verse 5, what's the unique ways? Well, a prophet of God. In the Old Testament, this is pretty normal back then. A prophet of God gives direction to David, right? We read that, and then David actually listens to him. For us today, we stand on this side of the cross. We have the Bible we see that we have everything we need for life and doctrine here in the Word of God. So in saying earlier that many of us Christians know what it's like to go into our lives without seeking the Word of God, I'm not talking about seeking a prophet, a prophet's word apart from the Word of God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going to the Word of God to see what God has for us according to who we are in light of who He is and what He has done for us in Jesus. If you have questions about how to seek the will of God, I encourage you to read this excellent book, Just Do Something. A handful of years ago, I just read the whole book on Wednesday night Bible study to the whole entire church. We read through the whole entire book together. But I encourage you, it's probably like 80 pages, super small. It's called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Find it really useful in terms of what does it mean to seek the Lord's will. And there he helpfully directs us to the word of God, to the church, things like that. So that is <clears throat> just do something. But in terms of the contrast here, seeking God's will, we see the contrast between David and Saul. What we see David doing, that is, seeking God's will, listening to God's word, well, that's, friends, the exact thing that Saul refused to do. We've seen this contrast come up again and again in the book of 1 Samuel. Saul had been known to reject God's word over his life because he wanted to do what he wanted. But David here, he seeks and listens to the word of God. He listens and obeys the direction of God. Saul's insistence to live by his own word is one reason that makes his downfall so tragic. And we see this especially in the next account here. As David waits on the Lord and his word and direction, Saul acts according to his own will and puts himself under God's condemnation. Look there at verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height uh, with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about with him. Now, do not read that and think that he's just chilling out under some tree, like hanging out. Some commentators say that he's actually holding court, 
This is kind of like a court session, and he has accusations against other people. And we read this, right? Verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that he's speaking of David, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you might have conspired against me? In other words, has, has he promised so many things of you that now you're turning against the king that is me? No one discloses to me when my son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. And then you see there who speaks up, right? He has these accusations. He's kind of going to fly off the handle maybe. And then who answers? Then answered Doeg, the Edomite. Not of Israel. He's an Edomite. Who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, <clears throat> the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? So you see what he's doing. He's bringing Ahimelech to account for his actions. He's accusing him of doing these things. He's accusing him of conspiring against him, which Ahimelech did not do. He's accusing him of their plotting against him to lie in wait. Now, of course, he did give him there the bread and the sword, but the, the other things are just mere accusations. He's kind of going nuts here. He's paranoid. And what does Ahimelech say? He answers in a very courtish way, trying to be honoring to him. He gives him legitimate reasons here. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? David was a son-in-law of Saul already. Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in all your house? He's saying, you, he has the stature. Like, why wouldn't I help him? Like, he's a good guy, it seems. Verse 15, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. He's saying, I didn't do this inquiring of God, whatever you mean. No, I didn't do it. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. You see there, he actually can deny helping this plot or helping this so-called fugitive in the eyes of the king. And you see what happens there, verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike, that is, execute the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, a priestly garment. And Nob, the city, of, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. This is a judicial decision here. He holds court rashly in an ungodly way. He determines that they are all guilty, and he calls Doeg to execute them. What is unique here is that Saul explicitly calls for their execution for a supposed offense, right? He's, the king himself is holding court. And what is unique that Saul, is that Saul explicitly calls for the execution for supposed offense that wasn't found in the law of God. You see what Saul's doing here? Saul, it is, in the height of his sin, is making up the laws of God. It's almost as if he takes the place of God here. He seems to take issue that Ahimelech did not disclose the oracle to him there at the end of verse 16. But friends, that, it's, it's not required in Israel's law. But do you know who required it? It wasn't required in Israel's law, but do you know who else required it? Pagans. It's 
very good chance that Saul here is acting more like the pagan king imposing ungodly laws upon God's people than acting like God's king over God's people. To put it, make the matters worse, he's trying to rule as if he were God. Isn't that the very nature of sin? Friends, if you're visiting with us, this is the very nature of sin. It's to define for yourself what God only defines, what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what is sin, what pleases Him, and what man should do. That's the very heart of sin. And of course, he's living according to his own thought that he is God. He slaughters Israel's priests. Not only that, though, everybody else in the entire city of Nob. That is crazy. It's a horrific event here, a horrible event. And he falls underneath, rightly so, God's condemnation for his actions. But if you recall 1 Samuel 15, you see here the ironies of the passage. If you remember there that God had commanded Saul to judge Agag and the Amalekites as they hated God and his people. What does Saul do there? He refuses to do that because he didn't want to. But where he refused to do that to Agag, he does here to the very people of God. Verse 19 bleeds with irony as Saul turns against the very people he is called to lead and protect, all because of his own covetousness, his vengeance, his jealousy. You see again the contrast of David and Saul. David seeks God's will and listens to God's word. And Saul, though, makes his own declarations and judgments and ends up guilty of murder, guilty of playing God. Can you imagine what David must have felt like when he heard word of this. Look there at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Can you imagine that weight of responsibility there for David? In a way so unexpected, though, what is his counsel to Abiathar? There in this situation, not only is he having no provisions of food, not only does he have a weapon, not only is he under stress needing to conceal his true identity, But there, here, he's looking and he knows, he acknowledges that all of the priests, to some degree, he feels responsible. What is his counsel to Abiathar? It's very fascinating. There in verse 23, he says there, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. What an interesting comment. It's very counterintuitive, actually. The guy who wants to kill me wants to kill you too, so stay with me. Stay with me. It's certainly not because he felt alone in that time. He already has the 400 plus men there. He already has seen his family and has been encouraged by their presence. It's not because he's merely lonely. Apparently, when he says, stay with me, their safety, his safety, Abiathar's safety, has nothing to do, actually, with what that guy Saul wants to do with us. Isn't that fascinating? It has nothing to do with earthly circumstances and the guy who wants to kill us. Stay with me. The guy who seeks my life wants to kill you too. With me, you are safe. It has nothing to do with him because safe, if safety were dependent on Saul's intentions then David would say, stay far away from me as possible because he who seeks me is going to come after me. So I want you to run and be far away from me. But does David's future have to do ultimately with Saul's intentions? The answer is no. Whose hands is David in? Well, we see here as he, as he looks at the Lord, as he desires here to seek the Lord till I know what God will do for me. He is in the Lord's hands. That's why he says, with me you shall be in safekeeping, because he knows that God has plans for him to set him on the throne over his people and to be king. The servants of Achish, right, they already knew that in 1 Samuel 12, 11, or 21, 11. Is not this David the king of the land? 
Didn't the people sing of him, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousand? In our passage, David here once again seems to be growing in confidence in this same knowledge that he need not fear because he is in the care of the Lord, which is explicitly mentioned about David in a future chapter in 1 Samuel. Though David in chapter 21 was certainly fearing, we see that by the end of 22 he is confident, though I'm sure wrestling with some degree of anxiety. Not finally in being able to outmaneuver the Philistines is he confident, Not finally is he confident in his own ability to outmaneuver Saul, but confident in God and what God has done, is doing, and will do for David, all for God's glory. Because of that, David, therefore, is able to say what he says to Abiathar. Friends, again, you see how we are reminded of Christ again. Though the Jews and the Romans and the world and even Satan was after him, were after him, it is as if he says... To those who flee to him, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For those who seek my life, seek your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. And you see, even in persecution and even in death, it is as if Christ invites us to be in safe keeping with him. Though he laid down his life, he certainly took it up again, right? And just as he was raised to new life, so those who are in him, united to him, they are raised to new life as well. Now, in no way does he promise us the earthly life we desire with the spouse we want, the amount of children we want, the amount of money we want, to the age that we desire to die at a ripe old age, working hour, dream jobs, etc., etc. None of that he guarantees. But he does promise new spiritual life, reconciliation with him. Forgiveness of sin, justification, right standing, eternal life with Him if you would flee to Him. Friends, if you know that there is some sort of darkness that you wrestle with in your earthly situation, maybe, friends, that you even caused. You see, friends, that's an indicator that you ought to seek refuge, not in yourself or in those earthly circumstances, but ultimately in God who delivers sinners in Christ. He is the one who is making all things new. And He starts by giving His people new spirits, and forgiveness of sins. Again, no way is he going to turn this life into what we want. But friends, you can know that there will be great blessing here in fellowship with him and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth that he promises. I'm pretty sure that you know that we live in a messed up world that is not perfect. In fact, a world that is sinful. In fact, we all contribute to that sin. But thank God that where we deserve condemnation, God made a way out in Christ on the cross, and with Him we shall be in safekeeping. Friends, you can be in safekeeping if you would turn from your sins and believe on Jesus. You will know comfort for your soul. God was David's hope and ought to be ours as well. To conclude... For David, it seems that it was in these difficult times that he learned and proved that his faith was ultimately, finally, in his covenant-keeping God. I want you to turn over to the book of Psalms. Turn over to Psalm chapter 34. If you're sitting next to somebody who might not know their way around the Bible, let me just encourage you to help them get, get there. Psalm 34, if you open up your Bible to the middle and turn left, you'll get there to the book of Psalm 34. If you look at the inscription there, What's so fascinating and helps us understand the heart of David, he actually penned this around the events, or about the events at the very least, of when he had to go before Achish, the king of um, the Philistines there. It says there in the inscription of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Abimelech is just another name, scholars think, for Achish. So that he drove him out and he went away. We can read about David's thoughts in or around or about the outcome of the event of our passage in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. And if you look at the verses, for example, in 15 to 18, go ahead and look there. You see what his confidence is in. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You see here, he's speaking about the deliverance he had before Achish, all brought about by God, delivering him from his enemies. You, know, you look there, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. You see what is clear? What is clear here for David, that even in the difficulty and desperation, whether before Achish, whether he has no provisions, he recognized that he has actually all the provisions he needs in the Lord. And so he seeks deliverance from the Lord. Chapter 22 is clear that he sought deliverance from the Lord. I wonder, friends, is that the tagline of your life? Even in the difficulty that you experience right now, do you seek deliverance from the Lord such that you know, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him? Do you, friends, live your lives even when you feel the darkness will not lift? Do you live your lives with a heart that says, just as the psalm says in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I pray that you would. I pray that we would, especially in times of difficulty after trials. After all, as one commentator note, it's these very difficulties that occasion the writings of the Psalms. I pray that we would all be like David, seeking deliverance from the Lord. For us as a church, we are reminded that God, in fact, is our deliverer, even in difficult and dark times. He is faithful to preserve us all the way to the end. So therefore, let us place our hope in Him and remain faithful in covenant love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you that you are who you are. We praise you that you are not like man that changes so flimsy in our emotions, so fickle in our decisions, so weak in our willpower. But you, God, are who you are, and everything you promise, you fulfill. You never change. You are good and righteous. You are gracious and merciful, steadfast in your own covenant love. Lord, we recognize your great love for us in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that when we face difficult times, we pray, Lord, that you would gird us up by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to know that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, this, these couple chapters, Lord, we recognize that David is in transition, and even us right now are in transition as you bring us from this land to the next. But yet, Lord, in it all, we pray, God, that we would know that you are with us. Help us know that we are in the care of the Lord. Help us walk in the very footsteps of Christ. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know that you are with us and that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so we might be able to say to man, God is with us and therefore we should not be afraid. In your name we pray, amen.